Welcome to the Heroic Minds Empower series, supported by the Empower Foundation. My goal with this series is to further understand and simplify the latest research on how the brain works, how it is affected by injury, sleep, nutrition, stress, and more. I want to find out what the latest research tells us about how we can recover, maintain, or enhance our neurological health. What does the latest research even mean? How can we apply this information to our own lives? Talking with clinicians, researchers, and those that have suffered from brain injuries, I plan to share these answers. Welcome back to the Heroic Minds podcast. On today's episode, it is the first ever Heroic Minds Empower series, and I am so excited about this series because it is bridging together two projects I've been working on, but more importantly, I've always wanted to benefit people suffering from or dealing with head injuries. And I always knew that I wouldn't have the doctoral background or research background to do so. And I wondered, I wonder if there'll ever be a day that I can really make an impact beyond speaking. And I think I finally found it. So that's why I'm so excited about this series, because I know for sure, from my experience in this space of head injuries and concussion in sport, in schools, in in the workspace, I know this podcast and these conversations are going to make an impact. So for those listening, feel free to share this with someone that may be struggling with a head injury or concussion. But beyond that, one of the other things I wanted to make sure we get across in this series, the Heroic Minds Empower series, is not just those struggling with a head injury or concussion, but also just well-being mentally. How can we enhance our neurological well-being? How can we stay younger mentally? All those little things, nutrition, sleep, exercise, balance, eyesight, the list goes on. I want to bring all those to light in short, compact episodes that we can then share with others and at the end of the day, empower each and every one of us. In this first episode, we sit down with Dr. Michael Hutchison, exercise scientist from the University of Toronto. In this episode, we talk about the phasing out of the dark room a place where people go when they experience a concussion and they wait in the dark for their symptoms to subside and then they slowly get back into their routines. We're realizing now that is actually not the best choice and what may take its place is exercise. Now on that topic of exercise, we discuss what exactly exercise is. I mean, for me, it started as walking around the block. For some people, it might be mindfulness. For others, it may be riding the spin bike and pushing yourself to the limit. It all depends. So what Hutch believes is so many people will try something that isn't the right exercise for them. It may be the wrong type, it may be the wrong stimulation, it may be the situation. There's so many other variables that go into this idea of exercise. But there usually is an exercise that works for you at your point in your concussion recovery. Another interesting conversation in this episode is the idea of what damage can be done if I have a concussion and I exercise. Well, Hutchison believes, and what research is showing, is that if you choose the right exercise for you at your certain point in your concussion recovery or head injury recovery, there really isn't much more damage you can do. And the outcome should only be beneficial, is reintroducing that exercise to your body, the raising of blood pressure, the raising of your heartbeat. So it's interesting to think of that because many of us may think, oh, I felt a little bit off. I should stop and not do that anymore. Well, that might not be the case. Before we hop into that conversation, I just let a little bit of conversation flow with with Hutch about a past guest, Dr. DJ Cook, the neurosurgeon and farmer that, as he said at the end of his episode, he's trying to work with a group that can predict performance and predict levels of recovery within professional athletes. And so 
Hutch and I are, are talking about that and you hear his opinion on the ability to predict athlete recovery or performance. And last but not least, remember to check out the Empower Foundation at empower.ca. It's the organization that I'm very happy and humbled to be a part of and the organization that is supporting this series. And what the Empower Foundation does specifically is share research that may be locked up in a facility somewhere. It may be in books in the library that people don't reach out to, or it may be things that we don't understand because the research is so high level. So what the Empower Foundation works to do is basically, in the simplest way, take the doctor, the athlete, the parent, the trainer, and put them all in the same room and have a conversation and simplify things and talk about things. So then when those individuals leave that room, it's not the information that's in a textbook that's misunderstood. It's now broken down. It's in human terms. And when those people leave that room, they can share it with others so that we continue to empower each and every one of us. That's the goal with the Empower Foundation. And this is the Heroic Minds Empower series. So to kick things off, we start with Dr. Hutchison's background, how he got into the field he's in today. It actually started through sport. I'll let him tell the story. So, you know, the kind of the generation for, for what I do today now was uh, largely come out of even just in high school, actually, was the process of I was a, somewhat of a hockey player, I guess, uh, I guess above average. So uh, not to, uh, well, I didn't have NCAA teams knocking at my door, but at least I had some Canadian universities interested in, you know, having me play on their team. So I was considering a couple of Canadian universities, particularly in, in Ontario. Queens and, and U of T ended up being the, the main kind of drivers that I was deciding between. And in the end, uh, some advice that I got, because it is a difficult decision uh, when you're younger about where you go for university. So I remember actually speaking to the head coach of the hockey team at that time uh, at U of T, and I said I was really kind of wasn't sure what I wanted to get into. I obviously, I actually like business. I really was fascinated by the human body. I wanted to play hockey. And he just gave me a, a bit of advice. He said, you know, in the end, I think your best path going forward initially is just what really fascinates you? What do you want to, what do you think you're really interested in? And, uh, you know, upon reflecting on that, I, I was really passionate about the human body. Um, you know, just physical activity, sport, I was into that. But I was also, you know, in terms of high-level performance, um, medicine, all these different facets uh, were of interest. So I decided to go into physical health and education because I thought that was the one closest to my heart. I ended up playing hockey during that time and about six weeks into, six games maybe into the, my first season, uh, we were actually at Brock University and I actually got, you know, run over, uh, so to speak, a very, very overt and kind of, uh, when I look back on the video, I wasn't doing too well. My stick was upside down. I didn't know how to get off the ice. I didn't even know where we played last week, the weekend before. Oh, wow. I was, I was, I was, Pretty, uh, I was in a pretty rough spot for a bit, but nonetheless, went through, I actually at that time, my first year, I joined a research study. So I ended up being a research participant at the University of Toronto in the faculty, because it was ongoing. This was led by Dr. Richards, Dr. Manwaring, Dr. Comper. So my first year university, I participated in a research study. Made a recovery, I don't know, I was back maybe within a month. Everything fine and Danny, go on to play a couple more years. I think it was in my third year, well, maybe it's, I think it was my third year. Yeah, it was my third year. Actually happened at Waterloo. And uh -oh. it was a situation where um, I was just, there was a scrum after the whistle. And when I decided I punched a player, he punched me. 
punched each other just like our masks. We were in full cages and went to the box and thought nothing of it. And I remember sitting in the box at the time during the offsetting penalties, just feeling, starting to feel really weird, just like un, didn't feel right, starting my head when my eyes were hurting. And I was like, man, is, is this a, another concussion? So I ended up leaving the game and saying, I just don't feel well. And a very like inconsequential hit. And in the end, on the road trip home, I just remember kind of being really fatigued. And then at that time, went back to the doctor and they said he had a concussion. Okay, so there's another concussion. But this recovery was completely different. Um, I did join the research study again. Um, but in this recovery process, I was really tired and actually like uh, sad. So like emotional elements as well. And at that time, I reflected and I'd be like, that's really fascinating how I have the same injury at two different points, but completely different mechanisms, completely different feelings, same outcome. So I kind of got interested in it. I'd be like, I want to do more. I want to learn more about this. And I joined as a research assistant. And then I ended up doing an independent project in my fourth year and then did a master's in it. Um, and then eventually I, I kind of switched gears from exercise science or sports psychology and I went into the Faculty of Medicine's rehab sciences. So looking at more from an injury prevention perspective, mechanism. At that time my supervisor was a neuropsychologist and an epidemiologist. I worked on a few years in that kind of it, and then I realized that this is what I wanted to do. And then I moved on to do a postdoc in, uh, at St. Michael's Hospital in the neuroscience program doing like brain imaging, but also from imagery prevention stuff as well. And that during all this graduate work, I was also still um, an assistant coach with the hockey team. So I was still really passionate about hockey and sport, and so I tried to keep with it in terms of that capacity. Um, but you know, that was essentially the main drivers of, of, of getting into this was two different types of injuries, or the same injury, two different kind of feeling states, and really everything moving forward after that was trying to understand this a little bit more. And, you know, that's currently what I do now as a professor back in the faculty where I originally started. Uh, so it's quite, it's quite fun because now I actually lead the research program that I was actually originally <laughs> subject in, I guess, over 10 years, uh, 15 years ago. Okay. It's interesting, too, that it, that's the situation that may have sparked your, I mean, to where you are today. But even for me, not from, uh, obviously, the academic side, but the question of why am I so lucky and blessed to be where I am with the injury I went through, which in a brain scan or in conversation, you may think sounds worse than, uh, and I put in quotations, a concussion, mm -hmm. you know, having bleeds and other things going on, you'd think that is worse and the recovery would be worse, et cetera, et cetera, than a regular, and again, I put that all in quotations, mm -hmm. so concussion. So it's, it's, that's what sparked my interest too. It's, let's get more people talking about this so we can start to draw mm. conclusions and similarities and and it's yeah that's so in a similar way i guess i've taken a different path not the academic path but um doing trying to do my part as well so and then you wrote a or your thesis or your final project in school on like how did you get into that because that's super interesting in a sense of uh trying to improve sport and make sport safer mm. for everyone. Mm. And it all starts, as we know, at the, the highest level. So can you t talk about that yep. journey through mm. uh, 
that paper that you did and, sure. and, and delivering it, I guess, which is an exciting one. Yeah, so I'm going to share two, two of them. One, both my master's and my PhD, because I actually find my, my master's project be quite fascinating as well in, in hindsight. And, and really the objective there in the master's project was uh, was on the heels of the fact that my second concussion was the elements of emotions. Being really kind of like fatigued, but also sad, and that not being associated with concussion. And I, what I actually wanted to do at that point was to say, is the emotional kind of consequences or the after the concussion emotions, are they different than musculoskeletal injuries? So if I separate my shoulder, if I you know, sprain my ankle, are the emotions difference between a concussion and an orthopedic injury? And at that time, we actually did show that the concussion emotions are different than a musculoskeletal injury. And I really think that brought to light uh, at least the, the idea that often people think, I'm, I'm sad or I'm irritable, and, I, and is that concussion? And I think some of our research has showed that, yes, it is, it does happen, and it's different than other injuries. So we can, we can revisit that one again. Uh, but that was the, the first one. And then the other project you're talking about is the, the, the my PhD thesis, which really I, I the objective was there was to understand the mechanism um, for concussions in the NHL, in particular like who did they happen to, where did it happen, how did it happen, with the lens that is there anything that we could do to prevent these, and uh, you know it wasn't exactly rocket science. I always say this because. I did, you know, we did find out, you know what, most of them are caused by hits to the head. And so, you know, I often kind of joke about that. It wasn't exactly rocket science, but it was a systematic manner for which we, we went through that process. But this was at a time when also when you looked at the rule book and you realize, you know what, they have a penalty for your stick too high. You have a penalty for cross-checking someone in the back. You have a penalty for someone hitting someone too hard, too high, too low all these different things, but when you looked at the rule book, it's actually there was no penalty for a shoulder hit to the head. And so as we were going through that project, the pattern of these injuries was very clear. And so it was an actual joint project between the NHL and the NHLPA. And during my thesis, I began reporting to these environments, to the people who make these decisions. So it was a very exciting opportunity for me as a student being you know, speaking to people like, you know, the head of the NHLPA or Bill Daly from the NHL, where you start to realize that these are real decision makers in both these environments. And, you know, as that kind of moved forward, it ended up being to, to a point where I actually had the opportunity to present in, in to the general manager meetings where there's 30 GMs and this is the research that we're finding and this is something to consider which in the end led to, I think, the initial iteration of Rule 48 in legal checks to the head, or at that point was blindside checks to the head. And that continues to evolve, and, but nonetheless, it was some scientific uh, you know, uh, information for them to digest and make policy decisions on, which so from my perspective was quite exciting. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing how, and I'm realizing this too, as I speak with more researchers, even on the podcast, but just being at the University of Waterloo too, there needs to be so many things pointing towards the answer that you already know and being able to prove it to actually see change, which mm -hmm. is, it's unfortunate sometimes when when it's relating to the health of people or mm -hmm. right when it's something else where people aren't as closely affected, it's not as important. But now I'm realizing why people are putting so much money into research. Like we need to get this yeah. proven so that we can then make change. So yeah. it's that's cool to hear. Now. Even going off of that, I mean, even not too long ago, 
a lot of people will do things how the professional leagues are doing it and knowing that the dark room and I put that in quotations as well is is a quite a big idea that people a lot of people know about mm-hmm. and <clears throat> was a standard and even on you listen to Sportsnet or TSN or the the hockey game the football mm-hmm. game the even the commentators will say oh they must be off to the dark room mm-hmm. and someone sustained a, a big hit or a mm-hmm. hit to the head mm-hmm. and it's an interesting conversation because that from what I've heard from multiple people including yourself is that that idea is starting to change and I guess that'll really lead us into the to me the most exciting part of today's discussion is, is exercise but beginning with the dark room mm-hmm. do we do you even know where that started mm-hmm. or why that why that came to be yeah so I think it actually had good intentions originally and that comes from a place where you know this is going back early 2000s where it used to be rest as the cornerstone of concussion management and it it actually stems from some early animal model research to suggest that when you sustain a concussion your the brain it goes into a metabolic crisis and so you know our energy system of our brain is you know has two percent of the volume um, but it requires 20 percent of our energy so just to sit here and not even say anything requires a tremendous amount of uh, energy and and work and so what they showed is that when you have a concussion essentially what happens is the 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 metabolism of the brain cells is dysfunctional and this is in a situation where we have a, a presentation where our energy needs are actually really high but our brain reacts in a situation where we have less blood flow and we refer to that as a metabolic mismatch. And so the idea is that if you kind of go through or push yourself in that environment, you may make things worse. And so that's why we suggested early on, the literature said, you know what, if you sustain the injury, you don't want to do anything because we need this metabolic crisis to settle. Now the problem is, is that the animal research suggested that happened over the few days or a week. Unfortunately, how that resulted and how that changed into practice is it kind of got misused or abused. And often people were referred to going to jail, going to do something to the dark room, going to jail, and don't do anything until you feel better. And that led to, I think, a a very problematic issue in this space because a lot of people don't get better for maybe weeks at a time. And so when you're sent to this dark room or you're sent to this jail, so to speak, that's no TV, no phones, very little interaction, no physical activity, not hanging out with your friends. And that then created a pretty negative potential environment because there's many other things that then come into play that potentially is going to affect your health and well-being by being in this dark place. Which would be beyond the symptoms of the concussion. So now you're having symptoms of, let's say, let's use the word depression. Mm-hmm. The, people may think is caused by the concussion, but really it's because you're separated from society and in a dark room for weeks at a time, potentially. Potentially, yeah. So we, you're, you're trying to manage a couple of things here. You're, you're trying to manage that we don't want someone to do too much because in that first maybe 48 hours, but we also want to make sure that they don't lose touch with the rest of the world. Because we also know that, yes, is a situation that if you just stay in your bed for a week, it's actually maybe the first day you think this is the greatest thing, but after a week, it's a very isolating and actually a psychologically kind of uh, stressful environment. Uh, and so simple things like sunlight, those are important for just our general circadian rhythms and our well-being. 
uh, having conversation with friends and families, social interaction, sensory stimulation, using our, our brain in a number of different ways is also very stimulating and necessary. Then as well as if, if we're not active, physical deconditioning can take place you know, within a week very easily. So we have that element, especially for people who would be vulnerable inside that they need activity. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these people who suffer sport-related concussions are highly active individuals. And you take that away from someone, that's a very traumatic experience. And all the things that bring them happiness and bring them joy are removed. And so, yes, I think by having extended periods of rest, we complicate the recovery process dramatically. And before we get into now, the next step would be introducing some sort of exercise or, just, or starting the discussion of, of exercise mm -hmm. and recovery. Is going back to that emotional topic that you discussed now, is that emotion going like what we just said? Is that actually caused by the concussion or the the maybe the social situation or the idea of being secluded mm. from society that causes those emotional mm. symptoms or issues? Mm. Um, I think it's a little bit of a chicken and egg kind of conversation here is because it's it's probably tough to tease out but the fact is is that they also could also work together and right you you may not if, if you didn't have the concussion you may not be isolated and if you're not isolated you're not going to have these situations but you can also have maybe a brain region that is a bit dysfunctional that makes you susceptible to emotional feelings and so if you have a little bit of that over here on one side of the equation then you have the isolation synergistically together they may create a different mm -hmm. new you that you know is, is not something that you potentially want right right it's interesting and it's, it just plays into everyone says it's different you can't see it than a leg injury right or an arm or right so yeah it's well so now going off of that i mean that's it seems like we're in a pretty dark space which is the complete opposite of what we're trying to do with with the empower foundation that we've been so excited about pushing forward so mm -hmm. now rising up i guess now introducing this idea of exercise i think the first thing to discuss though is really what is exercise considered because i when i left the hospital i was walking around the block and mm -hmm. thought i wasn't even supposed to be walking around the block so that to me was exercise now i guess what would your definition or idea of exercise be yeah so i think for exercise for what's potentially beneficial in the concussion space uh, has largely been driven by aerobic exercise so the idea of you know working in a in a, in a heart rate or capacity that we're not that we're able to carry on a conversation. You know, we're elevated above rest, but the idea is that we're not to a point that we can't have a conversation. That's usually what's referred to as an anaerobic kind of threshold. So if we just first talk about aerobic exercise and concussion, there has been, you know, some decent work that's shown that people who are not doing well for maybe a week, I mean, I'm sorry, a month, if let's say you have symptoms for a month, there's some research that's largely been developed at the University of Buffalo that said if we get them on a treadmill and, and we assess how they're doing and develop a, a, kind of a, a kind of a threshold for which they can exercise maybe five, six days a week for 20 minutes on their own. So trying to develop, understand what is a personal level of aerobic exercise. They show, they have some research to show that people, you know, with persistent symptoms, it would benefit, the aerobic exercise would help these people recover, which was a very promising, you know, movement for this area because, again, we were largely waiting for symptoms to go away. Now, 
what we're trying to do is we're trying to take that paradigm of aerobic exercise and say, can we now adopt this three or four days after injury? And that's really where we're trying to move some of this research towards. We don't have the, any kind of firm conclusions yet, but the idea is that aerobic exercise, um, there are a few groups that are saying aerobic exercise may be beneficial in that acute phase. And there's some preliminary work suggesting that's the case. Uh, we have a, you know, some research has been published, kind of retrospective analysis, that has shown that people who begin aerobic exercise earlier have you know, shorter recovery times. Mm-hmm. But we still need to what we call randomized controlled trials, so the highest level of scientific rigor to apply these in the acute setting to see if it's potentially beneficial. So when we talk about what exercise could be helpful for people, largely we're talking about aerobic exercise for concussion. And there's, and there's, there's value from this from other literature. So if you look at potentially even stroke literature, there's the idea that you know, inpatient hospital people, the faster they, they can get patients up walking along the, the hallways, the better outcomes they have. We also know that low back pain uh, type of injuries, they, if you get them moving, it's better. And so it, it was, it's interesting how we've taken the opposite tact originally in concussion to say, we, because it's a concussion, we shouldn't do anything. But I think now there is a, a tremendous shift to say, you know what, if we get people moving at least at some level, then that's potentially helpful for the recovery process. And when you say preliminary stage, mm. is, can that be the same for everyone? And that may be a silly question because I would, I would jump on and say, no way, then not everyone could have the same preliminary stage. Like listening to you speak, I would say maybe it's one to four days. Is that so? Or what is preliminary for, for an individual with concussion? Or does that correlate with their what they're feeling or symptoms at that point. I mean, preliminary being? The preliminary stages of their recovery. Oh, okay, yeah, so really, the most recent consensus statement suggests that rest beyond, I think, 48 hours, 48 to 72 hours is ill-advised. And now the problem is that, so the, the, the experts have said, you know what, after two, three days, you should start moving. The problem that we have right now is we're not sure what you should be doing. We don't know what exercise you should be doing. On Should it be a treadmill? Should it be a bike? Should it be walking outside? How often do you need to do it? And what intensity? All we do know is that you sh- we should be doing something. And, and the research, the community, like what you know, I'm trying to do is, is trying to articulate those things. What modality it should be, what intensity it should be, and how often it should be. And so, Nonetheless, I think it's, 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 it's to a point that we can make the general recommendations. You know, after two, three days, try to do something. And that may be as simple as walking your dog, right? That may be just going out with uh, having a coffee with a friend. But to avoid isolation and, and trying to, you know, we don't want to make you have an extremely high level of symptoms. But the reality is that we start wanting to apply integration getting you back to normalcy and start kind of, you know, pushing those boundaries beyond jail. Right. Right. And you touched on aerobic. Does anaerobic, is there research in that? Or is that something that's too intense, volatile in a sense of blood pressure, heart rate going up and down and up? Is that something we want to stay away from? Or or is there maybe research being done on the anaerobic side? Yeah. So I think at this point in the acute phase, so when I'm talking about acute or subacute, I'm talking maybe day three to day 10, 14 
um, is that there's really not great evidence to suggest that you know what, if you're still feeling unwell, that you should be moving to that level of intensity. Uh, that, but someone who may be symptomatic for maybe three months, that may be the individual where we're more willing to say, listen, from what all we can tell or for what the best information that we have on the concussion literature is, you know, we think your concussion is resolving. We, we don't think it's going to get worse if we ask you to do something a little bit more. So in the later stages, people with persistent symptoms, we more take the, the uh, approach where we, uh, you know, instill sound rehab principles. So we may want to start with aerobic, but the idea is we want to move to anaerobic, we want to test the systems, we want to stress the system, because really what we want to do is you may feel unwell a little bit, but really you're going to wake up the next day. This point made a big impact on me because when I was going through my recovery, it was very much do everything you can because I just assumed nothing really, eating better, uh, working on my balance, working on my vision, doing Sudokus, exercising as much as I could, wasn't going to hurt me. So why not just keep pushing? And just like Hutchison said, you'll wake up the next day. But now we're actually starting to back that up with research that, hey, if you push yourself a little bit exercise-wise, you're not going to set yourself back. If anything, you're going to help. So it's an interesting message and could be a really empowering message for someone that has been struggling for a long time. Hey, give exercise a try or try a different type of exercise, but keep pushing it because it's only going to help you. And believe me, when you're struggling with a concussion or con going through the, the ups and downs of concussion recovery and you're separated from what you usually do, which may be sport, maybe work, maybe school, you want to get back to that. So if you have anything that you can do to bring yourself closer and you tell someone that, hey, you can do this and this likely or may have a good chance of bringing you closer to get back to that, I bet you that individual will take you up on it. You're going to wake up the next day and we need to build your tolerance because someone who has symptoms for maybe three, four months, what's our other option? Mm -hmm. To wait? We've tried the waiting part. So now it's like, okay, let's try to build your tolerance. It's no different than any, any other rehab principles that we're going to stress the system. We want to build the tolerance and move forward. We wouldn't say the first day we, you know, you're, we interact, it's like, okay, I want you to do sprints up the hill. But the idea is, we have to have an understanding that our now objective is to build your tolerance. And the building your tolerance means that we stress the system, see how it reacts, stress the system, see how it reacts, and we're going to progress that moving forward. We're not just going to wait anymore. So it's all about rehab and retraining because the wait and see approach doesn't work. Right. It's so interesting because, like I, we discussed previously, I sat down with Amanda Kessel, who struggled for a year and a half, I believe she said, and and uh, she shares her, her story on this podcast and the fact that one day she met with this specialist and he put her through she said one of the toughest workouts whether not just with a concussion but just one of the toughest workouts in general that she'd ever done and had her doing you know in the middle of a circuit where she was tired quite tired would do lunges with a post and and spinning a or has a bosu in her hand and moving in another direction, looking the other way and all this stuff that you'd think would make you nauseous or mm -hmm. feel off balance. She pushed herself through that and then two weeks later she feels great. Similar to what you're saying, that had been a year and a half. So it was kind of like, what's our option? Let's try this and, and that helped her. Not saying that works for everyone. Um, do you know of a point 
and it, I know it would be hard to quantify. Mm-hmm. I don't feel well. Well, that's different for very, you know, mm-hmm. with symptoms and for different people. So, are, do we have a point now with where research is a point where okay, this is the this is where I should go for now and see how this feels, and then come back again tomorrow? Mm-hmm. Is is there a point where we need to stop and and not push ourselves through? through symptoms or, or feeling of not 100 mm-hmm. percent yeah I, I still think in the acute setting there's a subacute in that first couple of weeks we really want to still i think be careful on how much we push people i think what we want to do is we want to create an environment that gives us the best opportunity for success and that may be different for different people so the, the idea is in a rehab process to get someone active again doesn't necessarily have to be on a stationary bike I think what's important is to understand what does the the patient want. Well, like, is it their goal to maybe you know just have be able to you know drive to Kitchener and have uh, dinner with their parents? Right now they're in Toronto and they can't drive there. So how do how does the, how do we make that happen? Maybe walk them to the you know the train station, take the train, you know try to limit the amount of stress there, but give them small victories. And I think what you want to do is 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 see how they tolerate it with the mindset is that if we stay within aerobic capacity, do we really think that we're doing extremely detrimental damage to the brain, uh, even maybe a week after? Uh, likely not, but we also have to realize is that anytime you want to advise on things, you have to look at the physical requirements, the cognitive complexity to it, and the sensory elements to it. So if someone has very much sensory symptoms, we wouldn't say, okay, make sure you walk, go for a walk outside where it's really sunny and don't wear sunglasses. It may be an advisement where be indoors, well-lit environment, and we just want to test your cardiovascular system. And then a cognitive complex system is something that may be, sound very simple of going for a walk, may be quite cognitively complex because the locomotion of walking, orienting through different people, those things are complex. And so we have to manage the cognitive complexity of these things in addition to just the physical capacity. So I think what's important is that you try to define those things, which is going to, again, give the best chance of success for the participant. And that's going to be different for different people. But I really feel that if if we are, are kind of focused in on potentially finding small successes for individuals in an aerobic kind of manner, that that's going to set the, the ball rolling for future successes and, and obviously ability to kind of progress later on. That's a, that's a really good way to look at things, I feel, because people have asked me, what can I do? Because they come to me thinking, because I was lucky enough and, and blessed to recover so quickly after what I went through, they say, well, what did you do? And, and, and I, I sometimes hesitate to give answers because first of all I off I did like 10 different things at once just what I heard on Dr. Yeah. Google of what helps yeah. the brain heal at that you know eight years ago so it's it's interesting to to hear your answer and it's like the idea we'll say of riding a bike so yeah you can ride your bike uphill full speed and make it difficult for you to now find that victory that early victory whereas maybe you go slow on your bike on straightaway avoid the hills find a victory in that and then slowly add add mm-hmm. on the you know the cognitive mm-hmm. you know intricacies and, and moving forward that way so that that could help a lot of people that think they can't do anything yeah we'll do something but set it up so that you're more likely to be successful so that you can keep pushing it you know mm-hmm. for the next few days instead of trying to 
chew you know bite off more than you can chew right out of the gates right i think that you know one of the problems that i think people get have when they try to think they do something when they try to do something that they don't realize how taxing though a simple task may be maybe for someone who's symptomatic and may just want to go to the mall right i just want to go to the mall and, and do that that actually is a quite a complex task because one it's an open environment so gate walking the busy it's a very sensory driven environment cognitively complex and you have the physical demands of walking so walking in a mall is actually much different than sitting on a stationary bicycle and just cycling for 20 minutes that is going to have different requirements that's going to have different complexities and they're not equal and so it's it's being mindful of understanding how taxing potential certain examples would be because if the person goes to the mall and doesn't have success then they're they're maybe worried that they can't do that so they shut down for maybe a week but it just wasn't the right task maybe for them uh, and so okay. and that's why we do suggest that aerobic exercise that's controlled and we're just trying to elicit some cardiorespiratory elements is is likely the best start and, 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 and that's kind of why we make that advice because we know we're just taxing the physical environment. But at the same time, if, if you have an understanding on the patient of what they're going through and they haven't walked their dog and, and they haven't walked their dog for like 10 days and that's important to them, then you try to figure out how can you make that successful for them? Where should they walk them? How long should they walk them for? All those different things because that again, you, you need to see, you need to figure out what's going to be the best mode of success for them as well. Right. I like that. And I guess on a deeper level, going, diving further into the science on things, do we know exactly, just to give people maybe even a visual of some added motivation if they, or if maybe this is someone listening that knows someone going through concussion, hasn't found help, they can give a visual to someone of this is what exercise can do to the brain or to the body that then benefits the brain and we know they're connected so would you be able to put into terms to give a visual to people of of exercise will do this it'll increase blood flow maybe here and i mm -hmm. know that can also be mythical mm -hmm. i know people say do this because you know eat fish oil or eat mm -hmm. uh, garlic and it does this and you'll you know live five years longer so mm -hmm. i know some of this is and i'm and that's why i'm asking because yeah. i know some things are mythical and some yeah. things are are more just to give people a false sense of hope but what would exactly and this may be a very simple answer i'm not sure but yeah. what would exercise do for the brain for the body that would potentially enhance recovery so there's a there's and it's a good question because it's actually multifaceted and there's different levels to what potentially is happening so if we look at aerobic exercise if we kind of stay under that kind of modality we know certain elements like uh, bdnf so brain-derived neurotropic factor there's literature to suggest that you know what if we exercise we can actually increase bdnf in the brain and BDNF is important because it actually helps with elements for memory. And so it's actually a very useful, um, you know, kind of neurotransmitter for our brain. And so there's actually research that even suggests that it actually doesn't even just help 
our motor area, so our, our kind of area of the brain, which you know is associated with walking or moving, it actually, being, with exercise, it actually helps the region of the brain associated with memory, the cognomen, the hippocampus. So even a specific part of the brain, which, you know, again, cognition, memory, an important factor with a concussion, and so there's some research that suggests that. The other element is actually what you mentioned, cerebral blood flow. So we know that with activity, it's going to help cerebral blood flow and regulation of that. And, and that's important because we know post-concussion, there's a dysregulation of that. And so the idea is when the, with aerobic exercise, we should be able to help regulate blood flow. And obviously, that's going to have some positive effects. The other aspect is even stuff about other neurotransmitters like serotonin. So serotonin is associated with, you know, the idea of uh, sadness or kind of uh, emotional elements. And so when you're inactive, we know that's a problem. And so there's a cyclical element to that as well. So another neurotransmitter that's helpful from uh, physical activity. The other element is what we refer to as the autonomic nervous system. So the sympathetic and parasympathetic sympathetic system. And we know that continual exercise will help in the end, largely help with parasympathetic activity, so a calming kind of component. And so there are multiple factors from a biological perspective that are helpful, but we also know that even the intangible element of, of people say, you know what, when I just, when I do something, when I'm active, I just sleep better, I feel better. So they're like almost like a catharsis kind of environment. Right. And so you can look at it from different elements, you can look at it from the physiological perspective. You can look at it from the social perspective, the psychological perspective. Right. All these, all these, you know, entities have kind of suggested the many health benefits of aerobic exercise uh, on the brain. Cool. One thing I know you went through a long list there and touched on serotonin. The one thing I'm going, I'm going by Dr. Google and I'm fact checking right now. So <laughs> another thing I heard was cortisol. Yeah. When, and I don't know what the threshold is. And this may be this may not be true. When you you uh, anaero or aerobic capacity, you get to a certain point. So you push yourself. I don't know what it is. Forty percent, fifty percent. You get the benefits of of exercise. And I'll put that in quotations. Whatever those the benefits we just talked about. But you don't. Your body doesn't release cortisol at a certain point when exercising, and the cortisol causes stress. Is that mm. is that accurate or true? Well, I, I think you know it, it gets a bit kind of difficult to kind of tease this out because depending on your threshold of activity, your acute response may produce some cortisol release, depending if you how much sympathetic kind of activity you have. But nonetheless, in a study or the after effects, you know, after some period of time of doing some aerobic activity, we do know that does actually decrease our basal level of cortisol, which is, yes, you're correct, in, in our kind of stress hormone. Okay, interesting. So knowing all that awesome information we just talked about, and as everyone knows in this space of, of head injury, concussion, there's still so much, we, we, we barely know anything, even mm -hmm. though we just had an awesome conversation about so many things we do know and are starting to continue to learn. So what are, for you personally, what are your biggest questions moving forward and and when i say that i mean ones that you know over the next 
five years, we'll say, mm-hmm. we're going to start to figure out, like, what would those most important things be for you today? Yeah. So one of the things is I, I am keenly interested right now in, in part of this conversation that we're talking is the idea of the utility of, of exercise in what we call the subacute phase. So after three days. So it is actually a big area of my research right now. But for that to happen, we first need to better understand concussion. And so right now, I, I often make the analogies that we, we group hug concussion. If you've had a hit in the head and you feel unwell, you're a concussion. But really where we're moving this area towards is we're trying to create out different clusters of concussion. So not, not every concussion is the same. That's very common to understand. But we may be able to have little subgroups. And, it, and in that process, maybe certain exercises help only certain individuals, right? So it may not be for everyone. It may be certain exercise fits certain people. Because, you know, for an example, maybe someone that also has balance issues and neck issues, we don't want them running outside, right, right away, because that's obviously may not be the best fit for them. But someone who may be maybe emotionally driven symptoms, maybe we can do that. We don't know. So there's two, there's essentially two arms that we need to kind of attack at the same time. Better understand the clusters of concussion. And secondly, how does physical exercise help those subgroups? Um, because I, I do firmly believe that it is not a homogeneous group of concussion. And so we need to better understand the different kind of subtypes of concussion. And then at the same time, you know, try to figure out the utility of physical exercise in those in those populations. So you find someone that has these symptoms, and then hopefully one day we're at a point where those symptoms or or that type of concussion that we can maybe one day categorize can align with a certain type of physical fitness or exercise that they yeah. hopefully we see trends and, and consistencies. Of yeah. This person did this with these symptoms. This helped them. Mm-hmm. You should try doing this. Yeah, and here would be an example. For example, let's say someone that presents they have can't sleep and that they are very emotionally driven. And so are we going to say, well, just get on a stationary bike and just continue to just go 20 minutes, five, six days a week. Or maybe, maybe that person needs mindfulness. Maybe they actually would benefit from mindfulness. Maybe the idea of diaphragmatic breathing, the idea of having greater parasympathetic activity and the idea of controlling stress is maybe their best modality of exercise and not everyone should get on a stationary bike but at the you know maybe there's someone that may just have low level symptoms that are just very non-specific maybe that person can get right on a stationary bike and have no diff- no troubles so i think i think as we move forward i think we we will have to better understand that not every concussion is equal and not every mode of exercise is equal and we need to kind of find the best matches for each of them and so if someone's listening right now and is is in a situation where because a lot of people will will go out searching for help once it's been well beyond those three days mm. i guess would may be fair to say mm. you know those first three days people would hope okay this hopefully goes away soon when it doesn't that's when they start looking for answers so if someone knows someone or someone's listening and has these issues what would be the first form of exercise to turn to i know we've we've gone over that but yeah. what would you say these are the first three steps that you're safe to take or or generally this is what I would recommend to someone that's been struggling for over, you know, close to three months. Yeah, you know, I think in that situation, if we want to go with someone that's maybe struggling for three months, my, my suggestion right away would be find a stationary bike. 
you know, find a stationary bike and see if you can handle just pedaling for 20 minutes at a, at a rate where you've got like a little bit of gloss of sweat. You're not hyperventilating. You can carry on a conversation and then try to do that a few times. And, and, and because at that time, the aerobic exercise, w- w- the literature is suggesting that I don't think we're doing any damage anymore. And so if we have you stationary, so we don't have you moving, it's not sensory overload and it's not cognitively complex. We're just trying to train your heart again and trying to see how you react. And with that success and waking up the next day, do it again. Because the idea is you, should, you will wake up the next day realizing you're not that much worse. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty confident on that situation. So again, try again and see how your body reacts again and, and kind of just begin to realize at the aerobic level of exercise for someone that has persistent level of symptoms, uh, you need to t- begin to take the lens that more proactive approach to rehabilitation and, and waiting on the sidelines is not going to get you better. That brings us to the end of the first ever Heroic Minds and Power Series episode. Stay tuned for more. Again, continue to share these messages with people that may be struggling. And if you have questions from these episodes, you can tweet them at myself, at Ben Finelli, or you can tweet them at the Empower Foundation, which you can also find on Twitter, and I'll put a link to those on the description of this episode. Thank you for listening. I'm Ben Finelli. We'll talk again soon.